This podcast contains heavy-hearted discussions of depression, anxiety, suicide, and other topics that could be triggering. It does not, however, contain any official medical advice, so do your own research, folks. In this episode, I talk to Dan McQueen, who experienced a trauma of a lifetime. Okay, it's time to get real about the realities of having a concussion or experiencing head trauma or any kind of brain injury. People who experience concussions or head trauma often experience depression and anxiety because of the changes in their bodies, in their lives, and many people spend months or years trying to get back to quote-unquote normal. People with concussions often suffer from memory issues and have trouble working or earning a living because of it, and it's just hard to keep going when you find yourself feeling isolated, alone, and misunderstood. That's where I found myself after my accident and with my post-concussion syndrome. I was overwhelmed by my depression and anxiety, and it's hard to put into words, but I felt like a burden to my friends and family, and I felt like no one would understand what I was going through. In the darkest of times, I didn't want to keep going, and it was hard to get out of bed. If you know me personally, you'll know that I am one of the happiest people. <laughs> it's, it, it often has felt like my natural disposition just to be upbeat and happy, and it was so hard to go through that because so much was happening to my body and I lost so much of my normal life, and it was hard to hard to do that all i can say is today i'm thankful for the support that my friends and family gave even though i never asked for help they were always there and i'm thankful that i had a good job and i had money saved so i could support myself through this period and i can't imagine all of the people suffering from concussions or head trauma where they are financially insecure and unable to pay for the accident or have no coverage to cover the treatment that they need. And that's part of the reason why I wanted to do this podcast was to be able to help support those people who can't work or have trouble getting out of bed and it's not their fault and it does get better but it takes time and it takes effort and you might not be able to work full-time while you have a concussion and that's just the harsh reality. I didn't work full-time for at least three years after my accident when I eventually left the job that I was working at when I had the accident and I am just thankful that I had money saved up to be able to take that time off but 
so many people suffering from concussions are young people or people who have no one else to lean on or who are in a foreign country. One of these people is Dan McQueen, who was in London when he suffered a brain hemorrhage. So, <laughs> let me go back. At 28 years old, Dan was leading a healthy and active lifestyle, and then he went to an optometrist appointment to identify the cause of persistent headaches that he was feeling. The appointment was cut short, and he was handed a sealed envelope, told to go directly to the hospital. What follows is he gets emergency brain surgery, and I can't even imagine that. And to make matters worse, something goes wrong in the brain surgery, and he has a brain bleed, a devastating brain hemorrhage, and was put on a grueling path to recovery. Hey, Dan. Hi, Amy. How are you? I call Dan and ask him about the two emergency brain surgeries he survived, the weeks that he spent in a coma, and the months that he spent in a rehab hospital. And I learn about what was driving him, what kept him motivated, and how he relied on his perseverance and resilience to relearn literally everything he once knew, like how to walk, how to talk, even how to smile or eat. And I ask him how to cope with the realities of having a brain hemorrhage. My mom lands and finds out I'm in critical condition. I was in a coma for four weeks. But was in and out of consciousness for months after that. Things were dicey, touch and go. When all was said and done, I was learning how to walk, talk, and smile again. I had to fight my way back from grueling rehab. And while I was in the hospital, I actually had to keep my core temperature down below 40 degrees. Otherwise, there'd be brain damage. So I would put ice blankets above and below me to keep my core temperature down because the brain hemorrhage damaged the parts of the brain that regulate body temperature. Your poor mom. You're 28 in a foreign country by yourself. You tech, you email her, <laughs> hey mom, having brain surgery tomorrow. <laughs> oh my gosh. Yeah, she was not stoked on that, but she had, she had a very response back. She texted me back and be like, we'll be even cuter. We're in a good spot for the hospital. And like, she, she was very stoic about it which I'm sure she'd be quite happy that I'm relaying that message, but I'm sure it was a horrible message to receive. And yeah, mom, mom was very uh, put on a brave face and, and carried on with this. It was quite a challenging process for them, for sure, for everyone. Really. What was it like to have that happen so suddenly where you're living your life and everything is relatively normal and then suddenly you are having to rehab everything that you've learned just basic body skills yeah it was challenging like it was uh yeah like it was you know one day i go on with the headaches and the next day i come up with like 
And like four months later, I come out with like a brain injury and like I learned how to walk, talk, and smile again. Like it was overnight. Instantly, all this stuff is taken away from you. We're waking up from the coma. My mom, dad, and brother around the bedside, and they go, they're looking at me like, oh, dad, you're here. And I'm like, what's going on? I can't talk. And I point at my brother and I go, you. And I go, give me a pen and paper. Which I think for them was like, oh, at least he can like think and write. This is great because like in a brain injury, you're not really sure what the protocol is going to be, the outcome's going to be. And I go, right, I wrote down the papers paper to the camera. I go, hey, Cam, get me out of here. And I've got tubes into my body. I've hooked up to like a million machines. Literally, I know I'd be in the hospital for months after this. But I looked around. I'm like, there's no way this is. Like, I've got coverage for this. Like, let's get out of here while we can, bud. And so he was like, yeah, no, bud, we can't break you out of the hospital. So, like, cooler heads prevailed. But it was, like, it's quite super frustrating, right? Because, like, like I, I, I say these stories in jest in, like, a lighthearted way. But, like, let me tell you, it's super frustrating when you can't speak. Like, get, to get into a wheelchair, it took me 45 minutes, then 40, then 35, then 30. Like it was like incrementally improving this day by day, but only by trying you incrementally improve it. You can't just wish it's going to get better. You have to actively work at this to improve it and learn how to walk again. Like that took weeks, months of rehab, weeks of rehab to like strengthen up the legs. It is very frustrating to be, to be thrown in the situation to be, you know, helpless essentially. And I used to play everything like soccer, hockey, softball, volleyball, skiing. I used to play all these sports, and I was, I wouldn't say I was like a great athlete, but I was pretty decent at a lot of these sports, and I could play, and I enjoyed having fun. I thought, what would be the most difficult sport to get back to doing? Skiing would be the most difficult to get back to doing. Balance, core strength, depth perception, double vision, which I mentioned would still be an issue. Gauging obstacle to speed. If I could see again, I'd have to be in a pretty good way physically. So I told them I want to ski again. Then they paused, kind of looked down, looked at each other, like, okay, sure. I'm sure this is a like an exercise designed to get me thinking about future goals. That seared into the back of my mind is something I was gunning for. And that hope of potentially getting back on the ski hill was something that really helped me elevate my recovery and kind of strive for something bigger than myself because if I could get back to doing that, wouldn't that be something? Wouldn't that be something I would want to get back to doing? Wouldn't that be I would want to be someone who could ski again. Okay, so a big part of concussions, brain injuries, and head trauma is rehab. And a big part of that rehab is learning how to live with your injury. So I resonate with Dan's story and how important it is to set goals, but when I listen to him speak, I can't help but wonder how he made it through the little steps. Sometimes thinking big can crush me, and if I think too big, I think about all of the little things that I need to do in order to get there, and I get easily overwhelmed. And when I don't think big enough, I don't get anywhere. So I asked Dan more about motivation and how he keeps going and persists through the hard times. 
when I got out of the coma, I had like a tracheotomy in my, my throat tell me breathe. And I couldn't talk. And the doctor said initially, after looking at my chart and not meeting me at all, just goes, oh, he's not going to be a talker anymore. He can't talk. His voice box is ruined. He told this to my parents. And they're just like, sorry. He's like, yeah, you can't. He's not going to be able to talk anymore. He can't talk. And they didn't tell me that at the time, but it's like to tell that to a parent is like pretty, pretty harsh. I was taken down to the, the field by a nurse who is like a New Zealand nurse. This tough lady, she, she, uh, she goes, oh, I'll get him talking. He can talk. He'll be able to talk. And she goes, took me down to the field and a whole bunch of guys playing football, like soccer across the pitch. He goes, Dan, these guys don't think you're good enough to talk. They don't think you can talk, Dan. I go, and I managed to sum up some utterances and yelled them across the field. And, you know, I was talking again. They're like, you tell me I can't do something and I'll bend the world to show you I can do it. Like, tell me I can't do something and I will prove you wrong. That motivation is so key for me during this whole process. Kind of spills into life too, right? Like life outside of the hospital, like at work or with friends, groups, like social situations. And somebody goes, oh, Dan's doing this. Like, they'll make it like a little, throw a little shade your way. Like, yeah, man. But you tell me I can't do this. It makes me want to do it three times harder. And like, I don't know, that motivates me a lot. Like, I get up for that for sure. Like proving people wrong is a huge thing. Now, two for the road attitude is this this thing from the UK, which means up yours or fuck off. And it's kind of like that. You don't think I can do this? All right, cool, man. Two for the road, bro. That motivates me to get off the ground and prove you wrong. I've shifted my motivation. It used to be that up you attitude. And to be honest, it still is for some things. It'll still be like, oh, I can't do this. Or like you throw some shade, like a oh, cool man. I'll just clown you and move on. But it's transitioned from that FU attitude to like helping people now. And that transition is key because I don't want to be a bitter, jaded old man and, and angry at like, the world for like what they did wrong for me. It's like life's too short to be angry with this stuff. It happens. It's not your fault that this happened to you, but it's your responsibility to fix it. Like with you as well, like the, 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 the concussion, it's not your fault you had a concussion, but guess what? No one's coming to save you. No one's coming to fix it. It's your responsibility to fix it. It's only going to get better by you taking steps to resolve this. And no one else can save it but you. Where do you think this attitude comes from? Because to me, when I had my accident, the depression that came with my concussion was so severe and so I was so anxious that if I got any kind of negative feedback and negative news, things didn't go well. I'm crying, bawling in my room. Everything's a disaster and it's all wrong. How did you channel that energy to fuel you? I kind of knew that like wishing something didn't happen is not a way to resolve it. Don't get me wrong, like, I was very low in a number of points during this process, Amy. Like I'll share one story with you as well. It was what I call the, the depths of the human experience that I experienced. So I had this brain injury, you know, rehab for about a year, got back to work for two days a week. I'm in London part-time. And then I had a second, so I was back to work for maybe a month or two, two months. 
Then I had a second setback. I woke up in the hospital again after a second emergency brain surgery with the the sound of the, the heart monitors going off, uh, the machines I was hooked up to, like, what happened? What happened? Dan, you were found unconscious in your flat. The shunt that was in my head is blocked, leading to hydrocephalus or water in the brain. Happens in less than 10% of cases, apparently. So this knocked me back after a year of rehab and getting back to work. I was back at square one. So that I had lost a year and I wasn't entitled to go to rehab again because I'd already done that. I had tapped that vein. You've already done rehab. You can't go back there. I was like, well, what do you mean? Like all my progress is washed away? Like, yeah, Dan, it's um, you had another brain injury, another brain surgery, and I was just devastated because all that work that I put into it to get back to everything was gone and washed away in an instant. And I was low for a long time with this. Like it was a long time, maybe not a long time, but like a few days. Then I realized that. Wishing something didn't happen is not a way to resolve it or absolve it from happening. Like, I can wish it never happened, but at the end of the day, me wishing it didn't happen is not going to get me anywhere close to where I want to be. The only way I can get back to where I want to be is to get back to work. And for that, I call, I call it, I use the expression, chop wood, carry water. So whenever you're like feeling down or in the dumps, like a chop wood, carry water, go to the gym. Do some rehab, you know, do some exercises like chop wood, carry water, get back to work, meditate, put in the work to improve myself because that's going to make progress. And it's not always fast progress. It's not always like leaps and bounds, but it's slow, steady progress that compounds over time, weeks, months, years. Like if I look back and see people that have met me after the injury or, or, or that saw me right after the brain injury, they'd be like, Dan, you do. You're like times two now. You're so much faster. It's, well, yeah, thank you. But it's not by accident that I've improved. Everything I've done in my life after the injury has been very intentional. Now I have a very rigid morning routine that I use. Like I get up. Uh, I go usually go for a workout. I didn't go this morning because we had a later night last night, and I wanted to be fresh for the interview with you. I'll have a shower. I'll have a cold meditate or a cold shower, and then I'll meditate. And I'll come in here, get changed, and be ready for this, so I can show up in my full self for you, anything I do. Because if I don't do that, I start slipping. And maybe not like super noticeable stuff, but I notice it. When I know that I can be better, I get frustrated because it's like, well, Dan, you didn't follow the process that you set up to get better. So this morning I woke up early, went for a shower, ended up the shower with a cold shower, came in here, meditated, got changed, had a coffee, Brushing up. I'm gonna go to the gym after our interview today and, and get that ready because that's one way that I get my head right. I believe mood follows action. So I'm really religious with like working out and going for exercise. I don't know about you, but like I find that that helps me dramatically. So I do that every day, at least once a day. Go for a walk, go to the gym, go for a swim, whatever have you. I I just feel like I remember in the months after, right after my accident and I was so tired too. Like the, just the ability to get up and do things was hard, let alone like <laughs> trying to rehab or change my life or get back on track. It, it I just, I couldn't even function. <laughs> 
and yeah, it's that day by day. Like I never gave up mm. and, and I spent many months, but I, I did like you said, <laughs> you said you spent some time wallowing a couple days. I spent months doing that. <laughs> yeah. But everyone's different, right? Like I just realized that like, I wasn't going to get out of the situation by, and this is the second setback, right? I mean, this isn't the first setback. This first setback, yeah. I was probably walling for like a month. Second setback, I gave myself a few day, a few weeks. Most recently, I got let go from my job at Hootsuite last summer. I got let go at 10 a.m., went for lunch. At that lunch, I decided, you know, I'm going to buy a computer. I'm starting my speaking career tomorrow or t today. So I got to buy a computer today and I'm starting tomorrow. So I gave myself that acceptance piece has shrunk from like a month to a week, to an afternoon. That's how you handle adversity is being able to shrink that that acceptance piece because me wishing something didn't happen is not a way to resolve it or absolve me from having to deal with the consequences of what happened. Acceptance is so huge. You may not like what you're accepting, but if you don't accept it, you can't move forwards. Yeah. The world doesn't, doesn't care if you like it or not. And it's not fair that it happened to you. It's not fair. Mm -hmm. Because you can start seeing this thing called, I call this the pity spiral. And the pity spiral is when you kind of, woe is me, this isn't fair, this isn't fair. And you kind of get stuck in that spiral, yeah. that vortex of like, woe is me, woe is me. The thing is, you're not, you're not wrong. It's not fair. But what do you expect to happen when you're thinking that way? By wishing it didn't happen, you're not getting anywhere forwards. And that's yeah, kind of no, what I'm trying to get I, I totally very much resonate with that resiliency piece as well, in that my accident has allowed me to roll with the punches a lot more, I think. Recovering and all of the things that came with that. Like I very rarely get rocked now. <laughs> Well, it's like this happened to me now. It's like, what are you going to come at me with? Yeah. To scare me, intimidate me, maybe feel like uncomfortable. It's like I lost my job. It's like my brother messed me with his dad. Sorry for the loss, but like, no one knew this would be a minor bump on the road. I'm like, yeah, man, this is a pretty minor bump on the road. Like, it's not, it's not a big thing. Like, there's this great expression I love, Amy. I'll share with you. It goes, the sick, the sick man or woman wants one thing. The healthy man or woman wants a thousand things. When you're down on the mat wanting one thing, it's pretty easy to channel all your energy into that one thing. When you're healthy and you're worried about like a thousand different things, you kind of like, I have a better car, I have a better job, like my community's not the best year. Like I'm not a big fan of this friend group. Like, you know, like there's a lot of things you can tweak and tinker with. When you're sick and you're down and out, when I'm learning how to walk again, I don't give a shit about anything else. All this stuff I'm punting. I'm like, I'm like, I'm not focused on stuff I can't control. But worry about it, focus on what's in front of my face. Walking, getting his wheelchair. It took 30 minutes. Now, now 25. Now 20. How can I improve that by five minutes next day? I'm like you're kind of improving this in a way that allows you to improve, and that that's been a huge thing for me. If that makes sense. Don't worry about the things you can't control. My story, Dan's story, it's proof that you're not alone. Bit by bit, things will get better. You just have to believe and start working towards your goal. I believe in you. Believe in yourself. You can do this. You can find Dan online at McQueenDan on Instagram.
If you like this episode of the podcast, the best way to support the show is by sharing it with other people who have had concussions or anyone who you think would benefit from hearing these episodes. This podcast was hosted and produced by me, Amy Tom. Tune in wherever you listen to podcasts every other Monday in 2023 and help me meet my goal to raise $15,000 for Brain Injury Canada.